Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series in Genesis, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 34, verses 1 to 31, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Teach Your Children Well. The story is told about a telemarketer who phoned a home and said, I'd like to talk to the person in your home who makes the financial purchasing decisions. Well, the woman on the other end of the line said, well, I'm sorry, that person is still at kindergarten and won't be home for another hour. How many of you who have children can identify with that? Everything you buy is for the kids. I mean, children are expensive, and for that reason, some people have felt that, you know, they simply can't afford them. But the Bible does tell us that children are a heritage of the Lord. Well, they are. And if you've never heard me speak on this subject, you missed me say that I strongly, on the basis of the Bible, encourage young people to get married and to have kids. It's a normal Christian lifestyle. But with children, can we be honest? Come troubles and worries, expenses and heartaches. I mean, what else can I say to encourage you? Well, we're about to read Genesis 34, a text about heartbreak in the family. It's a story about sex and rape and desire and love and marriage and revenge and deceit and murder. All the stuff that today's moviegoers long for. But we can also say that our text will be a challenge for us today. This is the story of tragedy. It's the tragedy for Dinah. It's a tragedy for Jacob because in this, he lost control of his family. This is a tragedy for the family as it becomes unruly and Simeon and Levi become murderers. In fact, many years later, when Jacob lay dying on his bed, surrounded by his 12 sons, he says, and it's recorded in Genesis 49, 5-6, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Jacob never got over this incident. This was always a tragedy for him. But rather than just noticing that this story is a tragedy, let's do some serious reflection and ask how it got that way. And the answers we come to, well, that might surprise us. So let's start with verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. So let's understand what's being said. Back in Genesis 29, we find Rachel, she's out taking care of her father's sheep by herself. As well, even further back in Genesis 24, in the account of Rebekah, same thing. So the problem doesn't seem to be that Dinah is going by herself. The women of Padan Aram did that. What makes verse 1 noteworthy is that Dinah is an only daughter. At that time, there are 11 brothers and she has no connection with anyone of her age, and she might be longing for companionship. And added to that is the fact that the Canaanites, our text speaks of the Hivites, they are Canaanites. These people are quite unlike the people from Padan Aram. Remember Abraham, he forbade his son from marrying a Canaanite. So did Isaac. The Canaanites were known to be sexually licentious. And one finds that here is Jacob moves his family here. It's a clash of morals. It's a clash of values. It's a clash of ideals about what was proper in terms of sexual conduct. You see, Canaanite religion was consumed with two things. One was war and the other was sex. 
To Jacob and his family, that was detestable. It would seem, if we have the chronology right, Dinah was about nine years old when the family moved to Shechem, and this event occurred when she was about 17. And so they had lived there for eight years, and these eight years were incredibly formative years for her. And Dinah, being lonely for fellowship, begins to form friendships with the people of the land. It then seems probable that she also became involved in their social and religious festivals, at least to some level. And with that came the clash of values between her family and the wider culture around her. Now, we might say, yeah, but what could be done about that? Well, several things. First, it was fine for Jacob to build an altar at Shechem, but he didn't have to stay there. And what's more, Jacob had promised God that he would go to Bethel, so why isn't he going? And on top of that, he might have sent back to Padan Aram to find a suitable husband for his daughter. Instead, from my reading of this text, Jacob seems unconcerned for his daughter. Remember, Jacob has huge weaknesses. He loves his wife, Rachel, the most, and with that, he loves his son, Joseph. And after that come the rest of his sons, and I'm willing to bet, given his reactions to the rape, that he hardly even gave a thought to Dinah at all. Yep, Jacob has a new nature, but he has a huge blind spot. Now we come to verses 2 and 3. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. First, I think what happened to Dinah is probably roughly equivalent to what we now call date rape. Second, please notice something that sometimes causes confusion. The name of the city is Shechem, and the name of the young man is Shechem. The young man was most likely given the name of the city because his father was the ruler, and the young man would be king of the city next. So his name, Shechem, means he's rich and famous and important. Given also that after the rape, Shechem is madly in love with Dinah, it would seem apparent that they already knew each other and had developed the same fondness for each other. But when Shechem thought that he had a right to sex and Dinah is saying no, he simply overpowers her and the text says he humiliated her. In some ways, all of us should understand this scenario. I mean, first of all, Christians live in the middle of a culture that has a vastly different sexual morality than we do as believers. For for us as Christians, sex is a sacred trust. It's reserved for and bounded in by heterosexual marriage. But we also know that each Christian home is locked in a battle. It's a clash with the culture. In North America, where secular culture just assumes that sex goes along with dating, a Christian woman would fool herself to think that she can be faithful to her God and date a man who is immersed in the culture of this world. I'm always amazed at how often Christian parents neglect to understand this essential aspect in their children's lives. Your children's friends will give your children something you can't your relationships. And these relationships are incredibly powerful. I'm also amazed how often there are parents who neglect this by not stacking the deck in their favor. Sunday school, youth ministry, stuff where Christian kids get together. 
Sometimes a parent will say, you know, my, my Johnny and Susie can't go to youth because, you know, they have to study or they have violin lessons or sports or you name it. They just neglect this important aspect. And by the way, you know, Kathy and I made a commitment to our children after high school. We'd let them travel, but travel included a Bible school overseas. You see, we said, have an adventure, but have it being rooted in Jesus and in his gospel. Did you know that Solomon said that love was more unyielding than the grave? And it is. But that does not yet define love or the different kinds of love. Well, let's keep reading verses 4 to 8. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Give me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Now, please notice the different terms for affection in this passage. Verse 3, it says, Shechem loved her. Then in verse 8, it says, his soul longed for her. Later in verse 19, we'll read, he was delighted in her. I mean, all of those are emotionally laden terms. And those of us who have circled the block more than once can tell you of people who feel this way and even say, I can't live without you. And then, of course, 10 years later, they're divorced or committing adultery or expressing this same feeling for someone else. And, and by the way, this is also a lesson for singles who long for marriage. Love in its fullness is surely about emotions, but it's also about tenderness. It's a willingness to sacrifice for others, and it's a commitment to honor and to share a common value system in the faith. It's about fidelity. Love is about many things, but Shechem knows nothing of those things. He only knows that he really wants Dinah, and that's where he is poverty-stricken. You know, the more we can do to teach about love, the real kind, the better we're off. And if you're single and fall in love, ask the other questions, the hard ones, not just the emotional ones. Because faith, real faith, is not just words or feelings. It's rooted in a covenant with Christ. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and special friends and musicians, The Weebs. You'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, laugh and be encouraged, and enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. Come on your own or with your family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it out and get on board at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. What's often missed in the story of Dinah is verse 26. We'll read it in just a moment, but before we do, 
would you notice that while Shechem was expressing love and desire for Dinah, while his family was negotiating as to how a marriage might happen, all the while, Dinah was in Shechem's house, not back with her family. In essence, we might say the house of Shechem was holding Dinah like a captive of war. And the family of Jacob are in this time unable to talk to Dinah and ask her what actually happened. So let's continue to read. I'm reading verses 9 to 11. While holding on to Dinah, Hamor, the father of Shechem, is telling Jacob of Shechem's great love for Dinah. And so he says, make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. You know, I spent a good bit of time thinking about why this passage is included in our Bible. You know, you have to know that there are numerous incidences in the life of Jacob over the years that are not written down. But for some reason, Moses decided to tell us this story. So why? Well, in order to answer that, look closely at the offer that Hamor is making. It comes in three parts. One, it is an offer for peace, peaceful coexistence in the land. Second, it's also an offer for establishing trade relationships and the purchase of property and making money. Well, it's an offer of wealth. And thirdly, it's an offer of intermarriage, which will begin with whatever bride price Jacob decides on to start the financial ball rolling. In other words, Hamor, Shechem's father, is offering Jacob, Dinah's father, a relationship as equals and is providing mutual respect and advantage to each other's families. This would not have been an uncommon offer in that day. So why does Moses include this story? Well, listen to Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 4. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons and taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me and serve other gods. See, all through the law and the rest of the Old Testament, the idea of marrying outside of your faith is strictly forbidden because the doing of this would end the faith. Future generations would not believe. The covenant with God would be forgotten. The next generation would know nothing of the promise of God to bring a savior into the world who would crush the head of the serpent. And here's the truth. The faith is easily extinguished within one generational handoff. If one generation is unfaithful and does not marry within the faith, the faith dies. Furthermore, and this is key, for us as Christians, Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage, that is for the believer, well, it's premised on the relationship with Christ and the church. As Christ is pure, so marriage is to be pure. 
as Christ gave himself for the church, dying on the cross so that our sins might be forgiven. So also, husbands are to give their lives for their wives. And as the church submits to Christ in his holiness, so also wives are to submit to their husbands, looking to them to lead them in the holiness that Christ has mandated. The gospel of Jesus is to be played out in every marriage. And furthermore, as Malachi 2 verse 15 reminds us, God is seeking godly offspring. And as 1 Corinthians seven fourteen reminds us, God is seeking children who are holy. Now, I know so much more needs to be said, especially words of hope and mercy to those who are married to a non-Christian spouse. God wants you to stay with your non-Christian spouse and, and not to divorce, if that's at all possible. And we also know that God is gracious because Timothy, Paul's right-hand man, had a believing mother, but he had an unbelieving father. God can make wonderful things happen in less than ideal situations. So take hope. But here's the key. It is important to understand that there is an ideal. To give up on the ideal is to give away our faith. Let's get back to the text before us. Jacob is listening to Hamor's offer, and all the while, Jacob's sons are standing beside their father. I'm reading Genesis 34, verses 13 to 24. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all of his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. So Hamor and his son Shechem go back to their city, and their job is now to convince every man in that city to get circumcised. Now, I know you're thinking, I mean, that would be quite a convincing job. Why would anyone go for that? But Hamor and Shechem think, in the end, we're simply going to assimilate Israel and his family. See, that's the reason Moses tells this story. He knows that at this point in history, the entire story of redemption is at stake. If Israel is assimilated by the Hivites, then there will be no Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, no taking of the promised land, no King David in the future, no prophets, there will be no Messiah. And we know this is the issue, whether or not the Savior will enter the world. And then comes the savage part. I'm reading verses 25 to 31. On the third day when they were sore, Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure, 
killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the house, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Now, clearly, this is a story of everything going wrong. It's a story of rape and the potential of Jacob's family being assimilated. It's a story of deceit and murder and of the assurance that the Messiah will come. But this could also have been avoided, yeah? I notice that when this is all done, the next chapter begins with the words that God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel. Should have gone there years before. He should have taken action to assure that his daughter found a good husband. He should have dealt with the problem of idolatry in his home. He should have seen the importance of safeguarding his family rather than lavishing all of his love on just one son. But with all these errors, God is not finished with Jacob or with his promise of the Messiah. And that tells me the twofold point of the story. First, parents, raise your children in the faith. Make that your first priority. And second, when you find out all of your mistakes and sins, don't you lose hope. God is not finished with you yet. John, let's raise the issue of, uh, of, of Christian parents who, who seem to be able to provide more opportunity for their children to be involved in secular events than perhaps church events. Yeah, I mean, a lot of secular events that we're involved in are not necessarily bad. You can take them up for, you know, soccer practice and, you know, violin practices. We know there's so many things that we do. However, every parent needs to ask... What is most important? I mean, what is that one thing that my kids need to have that they can't give up on? And we've, if, if you don't say Jesus, the gospel, living faithfully to him, you need to repent. You need to focus your kids on what is ultimately important. It's a mandate. God has given this to us. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Genesis right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Every once in a while, an opportunity arises that's just hard to pass up. In fact, that's what I want to share with you today. For the next number of weeks, a group dedicated to the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, have provided a match pledge gift of $125,000. So what does that mean? It means that you have the opportunity to make such an incredible difference in this ministry moving forward. So for every dollar so graciously given right now, another dollar will be given to the ministry up to $125,000. That means if you call us today with a gift of $100, it becomes $200. Or a gift of $1,000, it becomes $2,000, multiplying the opportunity to sustain and grow this Bible teaching and engagement ministry. So please join us in maximizing this generous pledge by calling us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donating securely online at Back to the Bible. 
www.backtothebible.ca. Your gift now doubled will support the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, and In Doubt.